0: Okay, hey, if you have a Bible, would you go with me over to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, the relationship that cannot be broken. There's a lot of weird things being taught today. There are great benefits to the internet, but there's it's still kind of like the wild wild west in ways. And uh, you have to be careful where you go and what you expose yourself to on the internet. Uh, We are glad to have a a presence there that, by the way, is really growing quickly, and we're grateful for that. But one of the things that we see and we understand is that people just do not get the issue of uh, salvation by grace. They don't understand it. Many people to their own demise reject it. There are people who fight against it. There are plenty of name callers. And uh, friend, listen, we don't wish ourselves into heaven, but we know that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. All right? And you have nothing you can do except believe in Christ. Trust in him to give you that gift of eternal life. You can't be saved another way. So if you think you have to serve him, be faithful to him change your life, reform your life, stop, start, all these other things, and you think that's what's going to get you to heaven, uh, you're sadly mistaken. You cannot go to heaven except by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Now, when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are born into his family as an eternal child of God. And he continues to work in your life for the rest of your life, Okay? Now, you not only receive eternal life, but you enter into an eternal relationship with God himself. And it's an eternal relationship, therefore that relationship cannot be broken. It cannot come to an end. That's so why people who believe that you can lose your salvation are sadly mistaken. And in their Bible, well, their Bible... It fits, but they can't fit the pieces together. And so they've got all kinds of weird stuff and beliefs going on that just don't seem to go together. Again, it's a forever relationship. The Bible speaks of being born again. It never speaks ever of being unborn. Ever. Not only that, but the Bible never talks about being born again and again and again and again. Uh, It is not a yo-yo salvation where you have it, you lose it, you have it, you up and down, up and down, up and down. No, it is a constant because the saving grace of God is a constant. God doesn't fail, we do fail. So we're going to look at two main points today and look at the scriptures having to do with that. Really, this week and next week go absolutely together. I would have loved to cover it all in one message, but there are too many goodies here for that. So let's look, number one, at the living out of our eternal relationship, the living out of our eternal relationship. And we started talking about that last week, started talking about how God deals with our lives as believers, Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about trials and hardships that we go through as Christians. Yes, friend, when you get saved, your biggest problem is over, but there are new problems that are going to come into your life once you're a believer that you weren't even aware of before you were saved. But that's okay. God's going to bring us through. And we see in Romans chapter 8, and verse 18, Paul talked about what it was like for him serving the Lord as a believer, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And uh, he talks about the life, the dedicated Christian life, and the life of true discipleship. And he says in verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There are the sufferings of persecution. There's also the sufferings of these bodies in which we live, right? As we get older, okay, now I know this is a totally foreign concept to those of you who are teenagers and maybe college-age kids, but let me tell you something. Before the best comes, the worst is coming, all right, and uh, not the worst, th- 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 less than the best, let me put it that way, <laughs> is gonna be coming. And and uh, your body, just like your car one day, is gonna start wearing out and, and different things are gonna be coming up. And I'm grateful for a yearly physical checkup that I get every single year, simply to make sure everything is functioning properly and to be on the lookout for things that aren't. And by the way, don't wait until... Uh, Uh, especially as you get older, don't wait until you have a major thing go wrong before you go in and have a physical. Okay. Be proactive on that. Be proactive. Okay. But you notice this in verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The Lord wants us to see the big picture of our Christian life. Folks, it's when we lose sight. When we lose the eternal perspective on this life compared to the next, that we can get very, very discouraged because we're focused on the temporal, not on the eternal. Yes, there are issues. Yes, there are less than ideal situations. Yes, there are problems we are going to go through in this life, but they are so minuscule and they're so temporary compared to what we have to look forward to in eternity And I dare say when we leave and we transition from this world into the next one, whether by physical death or by rapture, we are going to be not only relieved, we are going to be so amazed that we see as God does. See, when you get to heaven, you see as God does. It's no longer the temporary, it's the eternal that we're dealing with. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities might say, wait a minute, what happened to verses 19 through 25? Listen to last week's message. It was there. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. You ever been there? I have. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now people, there are some people out there who take verse 26 and say, see that verse 26? That's talking about speaking in tongues. Friend, you need to go back and read your Bible. Has nothing to do with any kind of so-called speaking In tongues, And by the way, speaking in tongues or languages was a gift given to the early church. This is not referring to that. You notice here in verse 26 has nothing to do with so-called tongues. Notice that the groanings cannot be uttered. Do you see that? The groanings cannot be uttered. So if something's coming out of your mouth, it's not what verse 26 is talking about. In the context, this refers to those times when we are so grieved, so burdened, that words cannot express our prayer to the Lord, okay? It's beyond words. Well, the Holy Spirit who lives in the believer, he makes intercession for us, and he prays on our behalf, and he interprets to the Father, he interprets the grief or the burden or whatever it is that we are experiencing. He knows. He can know my feeling or my burden. And he says, okay, Father, on this child's behalf, I come to you. And folks, there are times when it's that way. It's just that way. You might say, I can't speak. It's okay. The Holy Spirit can. He can. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose." Friend, the Lord never gives up on us. He never leaves us. He continues to work in our lives as his children. He's our eternal father. That means we're eternal children. That means we're locked in. Once you trust Christ, you become an eternal child of God. And he continues your entire life to work. Now, you notice in verse 28, don't misread it. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says that all things work together. For good. All things work together for good. Because of our eternal security and the fact that we are in the Lord's hands and that He will always be with us, we know that the Lord is in control and He will use the things that we go through for our good to make us what He wants us to be. He is active in our lives. And you might say, oh my, oh my, I've been suffering with this thing for so long, friend. It is a bad thing that you're going through, but it's a good, the end result's gonna be good because God's using it in your life and in my life to humble us and to keep us seeking him by faith. And some of the most pure times of being spiritual are the times when we are helpless and we are just there, Lord, help, okay? I think the greatest Christian prayer is help, help, okay? Nothing fancy. You don't have to pray in King James for God to hear you. You don't have to cry. Oh, I heard years ago some preacher wish he wouldn't have said it. You kind of sometimes have to mop up the mess. He said, the, only, the only language that God hears is the language of tears. Who, what is God, incompetent? Okay, no friend, God hears everything. He understands everything. Yes, you may cry. We may cry sometimes when we pray and when we're struggling with this or that. But friend, you don't have to cry to know that the Lord is near. If you're a believer, he's your father. He knows he's in tune all the time. He's never too busy, by the way, for his children. He's active in our lives. And so we know, we know absolutely that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, let me mention that second part. Let me mention this. Not all people and not even all Christians, this may surprise you, not even all Christians love the Lord. Did you know that? It's true. You might say, oh, every Christian loves the Lord. No, no, they don't. Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If a Christian doesn't keep God's word, he or she doesn't love the Lord. This is what scripture says. John chapter 14, look at it, verse 24. It says, Jesus said, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which he hears not mine, but the father's which sent me. Okay? You see, if we love the Lord, friend, we're not going to do things that hurt him, that grieve him. Oh, yes, God has feelings. You might say, well, explain that. I don't need to. It's what the Bible says. We can grieve him. We can quench the spirit and we can grieve the spirit. The word grieve means to inflict pain. We can inflict pain to the heart of God. How? By living rebellious lives as his children. Yes. I say, well, God's bigger than that. Well, listen, he's a personal God. He's not some Buddha statue in heaven. He's real. He's a person. Not all believers love the Lord. But for the believer who is serving, being faithful, and is becoming weary in the work, this is a precious verse to keep in mind. Because as we are going through the difficulty, the struggle, the trial, it might be something that is not even temporary in the sense of within weeks or months. It may be something that, that goes on for years. Do you know what? We can be sure. We're trying to live for the Lord. We love the Lord. We're trying to to be godly believers, and yet it's like, Lord, why am I still dealing with this? Why am I still saddled with this thing? Why is it such a burden to me? The Lord says, Shh, You can rest assured, this is working out for your good. Trust me. Trust me. Job, right? Though he may slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's not flowery talk. I think every believer sometime in their life, maybe many times, deals with that issue. We just have to trust him. Not making light of suffering, we just need to trust him. But he's active, and we need to find comfort in that. We are participating in the plan of God. We may not see it as he does, but the fact that he sees it accurately (laughs) is what matters most. I think of ladies who do cross-stitch, You ever looked at the bottom of something that's cross-stitch? It's a disaster. It's a disaster. You might say, it is a mess. It it just looks like a, a tangled mess under there. Yeah, but if you flip it over and you see it from the top, you see a piece of art. You see something magnificent. That's the same way. We only see it from here, looking up. This is a mess. My life is a mess. But God looks down and he says, no, you know what? I am creating a piece of art here. I'm at work. This is going to be a great thing. Which leads us to our second point today, the comfort of our eternal relationship. We've seen the living out of our eternal relationship. It isn't always easy, but we can rest assured that God is working it for good, all right? You may find out today something happens to you today that's certainly not good, But you can be sure because God loves you. You're trying to walk with him. You love him. And God says, I know you didn't see this coming, but I did. I let it come. I allowed it. I approved of it. And you need to trust me. You're going to be better because of it. You're going to fulfill my will for your life better than if I didn't bring it or allow it to come into your life. Folks. I know. Well, that's easy preaching and hard living. I know. But it's true. Which leads us to the comfort of our relationship, verses 29 through 39. Now, we are not going to get all the way to verse 39 today, but it's part of the flow. It's part of the flow. His purpose for us is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. All right? Now, a lot of confusion about that. Look at Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This verse scares some Christians because of some of the words in here. It shouldn't if we take it slowly and understand the meaning Which leads me to say this today, this issue, because people look at that and they say, oh, there's those scary verses about Calvinism. Actually, they're not about Calvinism because Calvinism is a false doctrine that the Bible doesn't teach. It's about something else. You have to keep this in context. God has a plan he's working out in our lives. We are eternal children of God. We live within our salvation. And he is doing things in our lives. Now, if you want something that addresses the issue of Calvinism, I want to encourage you about a little booklet that we produce. It's called The Alls of Salvation. Who and what did Jesus die for? All right, because Calvinism, and I'm just going to be uh, very straightforward, you know, um, I try not to be blunt, but sometimes it creeps out. And um, this is a very pointed but straightforward booklet that we wrote. Now they're usually, I think we get, we make them either for a dollar or two. We've got some in the back today. If you don't already have the Alls of Salvation, we've got them in the back. You can have one for free today, all right? But it's a little booklet. It's called The Alls of Salvation. Who and what did Jesus die for? It's very practical, and I think you'll find it very encouraging. Listen, friend, who did Jesus die for? Everyone in the world. What did Jesus die for? He paid for the sins of everyone in the world. And that's the short answer. But that's the truth. You might say, well, I thought he only died for certain people. You didn't get that out of the Bible. That's a man-made philosophy. Well, wait, aren't you somewhat of a Calvinist? Don't you agree with one point, two points, three points, four points, or all five points? Now listen, I agree with no points of Calvinism. No points, none of them. As Calvinists interpret them or teach them, I don't believe any of the five points is biblically accurate, all right? And if you're wondering about that, get the booklet or uh, just do, we've done a lot of different things, get my book called Secure Forever and I think that will help you in, in some of those areas. Well, let's break this down. Look at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, stop, Let's look at these things. He foreknew us, verse 29. To foreknow, now here you go. To foreknow simply means to know beforehand. The word fore, F-O-R-E, that has to do with before. And then to know, to know before. To foreknow is simply to know beforehand. And that is all the word means. All right? You might say, well, I was reading Dr. So-and-so. Start reading your Bible. Look up the word. The word for "no" doesn't mean anything more than to know beforehand. What people do is they take it, they admit it, and then they, they morph that into something that's not true. That's what they do. No, friend, to know beforehand. That's all "for foreknow means. To foreknow is simply to know something beforehand. Anyone with a basic understanding of the English language can figure this out. God knows all things beforehand. God knows all things that will happen, all things that have happened. He knows all possibilities of everything that could happen. He's God. This is not the same as making it happen. I read commentary after commentary, and writing on this, they'll say, Well, to to say that to know something and him not make it happen is not a true understanding of foreknowledge. It is. The word simply means to know before. See, you have to take it into the context and where we find it. God knew man would sin. Here's an example God knew man would sin. Let me ask you a question Did God make man sin? If he did, then God's the author of sin. Did you know there are some Calvinists who believe that? Not all. There are some that do. See, if foreknowledge is anything more than knowing, then we've got a problem. Because they'll say, Calvinists will say, well, he foreknew and therefore he made it happen. Oh, wait a minute. If that's so, God knew man would sin before he ever created him. But did he make him sin? No. He did not. He knew man would sin, but man sinning was an issue of man's choice. Man's choice. So he foreknew us. He knew before. Okay, for whom he did foreknow. He knew that we would trust Christ the Savior. God knew us before. He completely knew us in every detail of our lives before we were ever conceived. Because he deals with eternity. Then it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine or predestinate, okay? He predestinated us, verse 29, to be saved? No, look at it. He predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. Who is this referring to? Believers, believers, those who have trusted Christ as savior. Predestination applies to saved people. Oh, friend, if you don't get anything else today, get that predestination applies to saved people. Okay. God has a purpose. He has predestinated us to. Now, uh, this is important to understand. Okay. This is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church at Rome. He's not writing to lost people. He's not talking about mankind in general for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the of his son that's only believers he's talking about believers one commentary says this and i thought it was excellent very well put and i'm just going to quote it to you quote just as earthly parents make delightful plans for the future of their children so god does for his children the verse does not say that he planned that certain people would become his children It says that he planned that all his children would be like his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He made plans for whom he did foreknow, quote unquote. He looked ahead from the beginning of time to the end of time and saw in or excuse me, and saw his son in and in him all believers. Let me say that again. He looked ahead from the beginning of time to the end of time and saw his son and in him all believers. This does not in any sense whatsoever take away from the fact that each person who is born into the world has a free will to receive or reject Jesus Christ the Savior, unquote. Well said. Folks, It doesn't say he predestined us to believe. It says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Anyone can believe because salvation is open to the world and every single person in the world. If you are a human being, you can be saved. All right. Turn with me to John chapter three. Let me explain this to you. Saved. What in the world? Saved. Look at the language here in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. Who's he loved? The world. Calvinists say, well, it doesn't mean everybody. That's funny. That's what the word means. For God so loved the world. Just believe God. How many of you, by the way, were saved on John three sixteen? Raise your hand. Look at all the hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever in the context of the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We'll go to verse 17 and back to 16. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? The world's already condemned. And by the way, that means everybody. Because if not everybody's condemned, not everybody needs to be saved. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world can be saved, according to verse 17. God loves the world. That includes you, dear friend. And what did he do? He sent Jesus into the world to be our savior, to pay for our sin. And he did that. And he rose from the grave and he says, if you'll believe or trust in him that he made that payment for you, he will give you as a gift everlasting life. Can I illustrate this? If this were to represent you and me and my wallet represents our sin, watch this now. Here we are, we're all sinners. God loves us, he hates our sin, but he loves us. To get to heaven, all of our sin has to be gone because heaven's a perfect place. No sin will dwell there, yet we're sinners. And God says, if we pay for our sin, the wages of sin is death. We would have to die and we would have to spend an eternity suffering in hell, all right? God doesn't want that for anyone. Any one of us. Now, religion thinks, "Okay, well, I can do something. I can do good works. That'll help pay for sin. I can go to church. I can be baptized. I can give money. I can try to be a good person. I can do good to my neighbors and friends and family. And certainly, that will account for something." No, friend, that will not save you. Look at over here, Ephesians two eight nine. It says, "For by grace are you saved, through faith." And that, look at the next phrase, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So here we are sinners. We are guilty, we stand condemned. Our sin must be paid for. If we die before our sin is taken away, we'll be lost forever, separated from God. God says, no, I love you you too much to not give you a way of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God. And when Jesus came into the world, he came to die for my sin and for yours. He came, he took it upon himself. He paid for all of our sin, leaving us nothing to pay for. And he rose from the grave to prove it was dead. He says all we can do to be saved is to believe or trust in him that he made that payment for us. Watch this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died, rose from the grave. When you trust in him, he gives you eternal life. He gives you everlasting life. There's another one of those words, everlasting. What's it mean? You go to a lot of your seminaries today, what's that word mean, everlasting? Uh, uh, Everlasting. uh <coughs> well you know <coughs> you last a little kindergartner what does everlasting mean forever and ever and ever and ever see the little one had not been brain dirtied yet by false teaching they get it jesus loves me this i know for the bible tells me so okay jesus died for your sins he rose from the grave will you believe in him As your savior, I believe in him as my savior. Where are you going to go? Heaven. How do you know that? Jesus paid for all my sins. What did he give you when you believe? Everlasting life. Well, if you're bad, will you still go to heaven? Yes. Why? Jesus paid for all my sins. Beautiful. It's a message of the Bible. It's what it's all about. If people say, well, I can't accept that. Wait a minute. You're telling me God's a God of love? and he's going to make it near impossible, actually impossible for you to get to heaven? And God's a God of love? Friend, if God is a God of love, wouldn't he do all he could do to make it possible for us to escape hell? Yes, it's what he did. Jesus died on the cross. He made the complete payment so that we don't have to pay. And he says if you trust in him, he forgives you of all your sin, he gives you everlasting life. 1 John 2, verse 2, it says this, and he, Jesus, is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. And look at this, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, one of the five points of Calvinism is called limited atonement. Limited atonement. It goes this way. Jesus only died for the sins of the elect. What do you do with 1 John 2, 2? Makes a distinction. John's writing to believers. Believers. He said he's the satisfactory payment for our sins, believers, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friend, let me just say kindly, you take Calvinism and you say, I will not accept such a a hideous caricature of the God of the Bible. I will not accept it. Now, let me just say this. I didn't mean to spend so much time on this, but let me say this. If you are Calvinist, if you're watching this, you're Calvinist, let me say this to you, friend, or somebody here today, okay? And you may not even know what I mean when I say Calvinist. You, you, you follow the teachings of John Calvin and those who have followed after him promoting this doctrine. See, there's a book written years ago. It's called The Dark Side of Calvinism. No one wants to talk about this, but it's a, it's a good book. No one wants to talk about the dark side, You know, we like the idea, well, I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the elect. Why? Well, I'm saved, so I'm one of the elect. Now, you know, a true Calvinist doesn't know absolutely 100% for sure they're saved because they believe, another one of those points, that to be sure you're saved, you have to persevere and be faithful to the day you die. You have to stay on the right track. Oh, there are times when you can get off, but you can't get off for too long, they say, and all this. Nowhere found in Scripture that idea. Here's the point. It isn't a limited atonement. Jesus paid for the sins of everybody. And you don't have to persevere to the end of your life. Now, listen, most people would admit a small, and scriptures are clear, a small percentage of the human race is going to end up in heaven. Most people would agree with that, whether you're Calvinist or not. But friend, listen, if God has predetermined that only a small percentage is going to end up in heaven and the only other alternative is hell and it has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with him simply ordaining that you're going to be saved and the other person isn't. And what's that say for the rest of the human race? If Jesus has said, well, you know what? Everybody's guilty of sin. Everybody's condemned. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give man a break and I'm going to choose 10% of the human race to be saved and they ought to be glad cuz at least I'm choosing them. And the others too bad. You know what that means? That means 90% of the human race not having not basing that on anything that they choose or desire. 90% of the human race God has ordained before they were ever conceived. Before they were ever conceived, God ordained that 90% of the human race would spend forever suffering in hell. That's Calvinism. We should focus on the 10%. How about this? Let's focus on the whole world like Jesus did. He is the satisfactory payment, not only for the sins of the believer, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, why would Jesus die for the sins of the whole world if he didn't intend to open up salvation for them? He did. And everybody can have it. So important. Okay, I, I just really believed God wanted me to touch on that today. Getting back to our point, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, God knows who's going to believe. He also did predestinate believers to be conformed to the image of his son. That means more than just simply being saved, friend, as we're going to see here. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren ultimately yes we'll be 100 percent conformed to the image of of the son of god but here's the beauty of the christian life god when you get saved he not only gives you eternal life you become an eternal child of god but from that moment on god starts working in the life of the believer to change that person now the extent of the change has to do with our cooperation with him this is the christian life this is what we call sanctification But make no mistake about it, God's working in the life of every believer. I want you to see this. Turn with me to Hebrews 13. And I could show you verse after verse after verse after verse. As you're going to Hebrews 13, let me mention this. Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. You know what you find in Philippians 1.6? All three tenses of salvation. He that has begun a good work in you, justification, will perform it, sanctification, to the day of Christ, glorification. In other words, once you get saved, God saves you, keeps you, and is working in your life. Now I don't know about you, that thrills me. That thrills me. Hebrews 13, 20, it says the same thing. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect, that means complete or mature, in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is working in the life of the Christian how much are they going to change? Well, if God had his ways, we would totally change. But the problem is we still have a will. And so the amount of change that takes place in my life as a Christian is up to me, but make no mistake about it. God is pulling me, drawing me, working in me to change me into the image of his son. Will we ever get there in this life? hundred percent? No. One day we will. It's called glorification. Again, this is for believers. By the way, in eight twenty-nine, Romans eight twenty-nine, it says the image of the Son. The word image, we get our word icon from it—a likeness into the likeness of the Son. In other words, once you're saved, God is going to start working in your life to make you more like Christ. Isn't that practical? It's Christian growth. It's the way it's supposed to be for the Christian. Now let's go back to Romans eight, verse thirty. So we see so far here, for whom he he foreknew us, verse 29. He predestinated us, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Third, he called us, verse 30. Oh, see that? He called us, he called us. Yeah, he called us, he called us. But let's get practical. Just like a phone call, you have to answer it, don't you? You have to answer it. That's up to you. It is not God choosing certain people out of the human race to be saved. And by the way, election is even according to foreknowledge. It's not foreknowledge according to election. It's election according to foreknowledge. The Calvinists say, no, it's election, or it's foreknowledge according to election. No, it's election according to foreknowledge. It says so. 1 Peter 1, 2, look at it up here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Isn't that clear? In other words, understand this, and this is very key. The Lord knows beforehand who will believe in Christ, That's foreknowledge. And he has chosen or determined that those people who believe would receive certain things or benefits. This is the way this works. I'll give you an example. Let's say for an example, there was a trip being offered. Uh, I know Quentin Road Ministries is doing this. A trip being offered to the Holy Land, to Israel, all right? And let's say somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, I love you so much. I want you to go on a, a round trip They don't say one-way trip. I'd wonder if they loved you. But they say, I I want you to go. I I have bought and paid for a free round-trip tour to the Holy Land for you. I want you to have it. You can have it. I want you to have it. It's free. Will you take it? Now, you'd be a nut to turn that down. However, then they say this. If you go on the trip, certain benefits have been predetermined for you. You're going to stay at this five-star hotel. You're going to eat this certain food. On this day, you'll be here. On this day, you'll be here. On that day, you'll be there. You'll be going in these world-class Mercedes-Benz air-conditioned buses. It is going to be the trip of a lifetime. And all these things, here's the itinerary for you. And you can have it. I paid for it. Would you like it? All you've got to do is say, yes, I'll receive it. And you receive it and it's yours, and then guess what? All those things that have been predetermined, the benefits of that trip, they all come with it simply because you said yes. Guess what? There are many benefits that come to the Christian that have been predetermined, all because we say yes to what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's a gift, but listen, you know what you could do? You could be the kind of person who says, nah, nah, I don't want that. What are you, crazy? Crazy. If you don't accept the trip as a free gift bought and paid for, you don't get the benefits that are planned. This is how this works, folks. This is the way God's plan works. Let's go on. Verse 30, number four, he justifies us. How? How does he justify us? Not by electing us. He justifies us through faith in Christ. We know that already from the book of Romans. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 13 says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. I can't go to hell because there's no sin to send me there. All my sins have been taken care of through the blood of Christ. And then let's move on here this last one, last point, he glorified us. Now you notice the language here. He called, he foreknew, he predestinated, he called, he justified, he glorified. You notice it doesn't say he will glorify. He glorified. Have you ever seen that before? Do you understand how big that is? If you have trusted Christ, you have already been glorified in the mind of God and in the eyes of eternity. You've already been glorified. Now, if I'm already in heaven in the eyes of God, then how am I ever going to be lost? I'm already there. That's why you can't be lost once you're saved. It's marvelous. Think of it, how amazing this is. Robertson's word Pictures of the New Testament, it says this, the glorification is stated as already consummated. Constative, heiress, all of them. Though still in the future in the fullest sense. But in the Greek text, this is something that has already been accomplished. I have already been glorified in the eyes of God. You might say, well, I'm saved and I don't feel very glorified. Yeah, because we're still here. But as God looks at eternity, it's a done deal. You ought to be shouting right now. This is one of the major reasons why you can't be lost once you're saved. Verse 31 what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What all things? All those benefits that come to every child of God. God's great salvation is open to all. He, he gave us the greatest gift of all in salvation. And in that gift are tremendous benefits and blessings. And friend, God will give those things to you if you'll simply trust in Christ as Savior. First Timothy 2 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. All people, that includes you, you can be saved. You can be a child of God. God is offering you salvation as a gift today. A gift you might say Where's the small print? Everything God has is large print. Everything. He hides nothing because he's not a deceiver. Everlasting life can be yours. Will you trust in Christ today as your Savior? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.